you have graced us all things. Since you have justified us, no one can bring a charge against us. With your son interceding for us at your right hand, we cannot be separated from your love, no matter the efforts of the enemy. Lord, continue to sanctify us so that we would not partner with the world in opposing your purposes. You have purposed that we would be conformed to the image of your son and to be happy under his rule. But we each have rebellion that continues to rage inside us. Lord, forgive us when we think more highly of ourselves than we should. Forgive us when we think we know how the world should be ordered and we resist listening to the truth that is revealed to us in your word. Holy Spirit, bring to the front of our minds, even now, the way that each of us needs to turn from rebellious ways and submit to you. We know that your kingdom is among us, and in due time you will cause all to kneel before you. We pray that we would be a church that kneels before your lordship in glad thanksgiving. Father, you are never surprised or overwhelmed. So we ask that you would comfort us as we do feel shock and are frail. Our limited perspective keeps us from seeing that you can repurpose even the most tragic events in our lives. Have mercy on us now as we grow in trusting you, no matter what we can see and what we don't see happening. We especially pray for John and Jessica after the crash last night. Lord, we thank you and praise you for preserving his life. Thank you for granting him more time here with Jessica, Jameson, and Josie, and with us. And now we ask that you would work miraculously and through the skill of the surgeons to heal his leg. Help them to know exactly what to do to work in concert with his body to bring full healing. Bring comfort to Jess and Jameson and Josie while John is in the hospital recovering. Let your goodness be evident in this, Lord. We pray confidently that your purposes would be accomplished. Let us know how to love them well and to point them to you. And let all of our eyes be lifted to you as we look for comfort. We pray also for the Hildebrand family, especially Chris, as he comforts his parents through each of their recent tumor diagnoses. Again, Lord, we ask for healing for Dale and Christina and a full recovery for them. We ask that their faith would be strengthened and made bold. We ask that Chris's kindness and care for them would be a blessing. And may they have full confidence that their lives are in your hands. Give them full assurance that you are good. And we ask relief for Brixton as well from headaches that are keeping him up and causing concern. We pray that you would take the pain away even now and that this would just be a blip of brief illness in childhood. Our Father, as we encounter various trials, we pray that we would be driven to you. We pray that our faith would be made more secure as we endure through this life together. You are our protector, so we turn to you in prayer and we hear from you in your living word to us. We ask that this morning, as we hear your word preached to our souls, that we would gain boldness, not in our own strength, but boldness in you. Salvation belongs to you. It is your blessing on your people. We ask all of this in alignment with your will and under the lordship of your son. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat and open up to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Big thanks to uh, Josh and Courtney Nor Norberg for uh, coming up here and helping lead us in worship and for uh, Danielle and Stone for being uh, as faithful as always. I was blessed to hear them sing and to hear all of you sing with them. I'm so thankful for a church that congregationally sings to one another and to the Lord, uh, that we're not here to be entertained, but to participate. So thank you all. Would you all mind taking a big, deep breath with me this morning? <sighs> it's good to be in the Lord's word. Before I was in vocational ministry, I worked in the realms of strategic planning and business analysis and information technology. In all of these realms, I found one very common truth. You cannot find the right solution if you do not adequately identify and understand the problem you're trying to solve. Now, this is basic understanding in the realms of science and technology, construction, medicine, and many others. 
Men far greater and more intelligent than I have stated something similar. Albert Einstein is quoted as saying, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solutions. Steve Jobs put it more succinctly, if you define the problem correctly, you almost have the solution. Now, we live in a world that is full of problems. Amen? It's full of problems. Just pay attention to the news or look out your window. And it's also full of opinions about the solutions to those problems. And this is never more apparent than around election time. Uh, as citizens shout out problems that need to be solved and probable nominees do their best to prioritize supposed solutions to those issues, promising hope and change and greatness. But each cycle comes and goes, and nothing seems to have improved. And so the chaos that surrounds us and confronts us daily is, what is the actual problem that we face? If nothing's being solved, maybe we should rethink what the problem is. Jumping to solutions first usually means we will misidentify the problem. If we say the solution is equal opportunity, or social justice, or national pride, or harder work ethic, or tolerance, or love, and so on, we're automatically identifying symptoms of the greater problem, but not the problem itself. Do you see how this works? As society tries each of these and then fails, they continue to avoid the real problem and become blind and delusional. The end result of misidentifying the problem is to point the blame in exactly the wrong spot. And eventually, humanity has to arrive at the place we've arrived at, where the supp supposed solution is that we just need freedom to be our authentic selves and do what we think best in our own truth. But let's simply go with that for a minute as the solution of all of our world's problems, each person doing what is right in their own eyes. Any of us who've read Judges knows that's not a great idea. <laughs> but the reality is, is that's what our, our current world and many civilizations before us is presenting as the solution. If we simplify that statement, what is being called for is freedom. Freedom to define who you are. Sorry, we just had a technical glitch. The demons are active this morning. There we go. All right. All right, if we simplify that statement, what is being called for is freedom. Freedom to define who you are and how you will live based on your own relative truth. Now, before you jump to conclusions and think I'm standing here debating political viewpoints, let's remember that both sides of the political spectrum are calling for freedom. It just seems and looks different. What's being debated is the definition of what freedom means as a solution, and therefore what the problem actually is. The reality that the world, or excuse me, the reality that the word gives us is that all of us as humans have at our core, a desire for freedom to be our own lords, to break free from the necessity of relying upon God for our life, for our provision, and for our meaning. This is the disease, in fact, the death knell of original sin that has brought death into our spirits and hearts. Humanity, as it was with our first mother and father, stands in blatant rebellion against God and against his order and law. And the reality of the Christian worldview put forth by the inspired and inerrant and sufficient word of God is that mankind cannot have this freedom that is defined as being Lord of our own lives. It is an impossibility for a created being to be free from their creator. For we require the life and provision given by the creator. We require the love and benevolence. We were created to be his loyal subjects, obeying his lordship and reigning over creation as subregents in his name. To completely detach ourselves from him and from his provision so that we could have complete, quote-unquote, freedom over our own lives is first and foremost an impossibility. It's like an appliance wanting to have life but being connected from the, disconnected from the outlet. It makes no sense. But then it's also contrary to our very being. And lastly, it means assured destruction. The fact is, is that we were created to be bound to something servants to someone, and under the reign of some kind of ruler. That's what we are created to be. The options, therefore, are pretty limited. We will be bound to Christ as his servants, sitting in joyful submission to his benevolent and loving reign, or we will be bound by and be servants to 
sin, and rebellion. Choosing to serve the cruel taskmaster of sin and hell and the kingdom of darkness is the only other option outside of serving the good and benevolent God. The liberty that humanity desires is actually found in surrender to obedient submission to Jesus Christ. This may seem paradoxical to you that freedom can be found in bondage to the king, but it's in salvation through Christ and the ensuing lordship that follows that we actually find the freedom we're looking for. Freedom from our cruel taskmaster of our sinful nature and our desire to fight against God. Moms, you know what this looks like. When you look at your kiddo as they are fighting you at every turn and you think in your mind it would be so much easier if you just followed me because I love you and you can trust me. Moms, you get probably a better glimpse than any of us in terms of being the life giver and yet seeing this original sin creature in front of you that you love dearly, just like the Lord loves us, fighting so hard against you. That is proof of original sin. Amen, moms? Dads, I'm sure you can chime in too. But true freedom, true freedom from the cruel taskmaster of our sinful nature is found in Christ. And this is why James refers twice to the commands of Christ as the law of liberty, the law of freedom. That in and of itself is a paradox. In obedient submission, we actually find freedom. In disobedient rebellion, we actually find bondage. And so scripture is clear, as we will see this morning in the second psalm, the problem is our desire to be Lord. Any solution that is suggested outside of dealing with that problem, it is going to fail. And this defined problem actually immediately gives us a solution. Rather than being Lord of our own lives, we need a benevolent Lord to whom we can submit and who changes our hearts to be obedient and submitted to him. It is this problem of sin and solution in the lordship of God's Messiah that we're going to see today in Psalm 2. And then amidst the chaotic rebellion of humanity that is raging around us, fighting against God, and even sometimes within us, Psalm 3 will show us that we need not fear that rebellious rage of the world that paints us as enemies. Instead, we will see Psalm 3 as the practical application of the truths we'll learn in Psalm 2. We'll see that we are safe in the Lord and can trust him even when it feels like the world is falling apart around us. So this morning, the songbook of the praises of God's people, the book of Psalms, will bring us salvation found amidst a world raging at God. Salvation found amidst a world raging at God. And we'll begin with Psalm 2. As we did last week, would you join me in reading aloud from Psalm 2 if you have an ESV? Uh, if you have a, a different translation, you are more than welcome to join us as well, but it will sound a bit different. Let's begin reading Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we see this morning Oh, this is what happens. It's wrong on the screen. My fault. <laughs> Write down what I say, not what's up on the screen. This is what happens when I'm hurried in the morning. The first section we'll see the world's sinful mutiny against its creator. The world's sinful mutiny 
against its creator. And we'll see this in the first three verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The world's sinful mutiny against its creator. From both Jewish and Christian tradition, there is evidence that Psalm 2 is actually the second half of Psalm 1. And as such, is meant to be introductory to the rest of the Psalms. If we look at the material, it fits quite well with this theory for a couple of reasons. First, thematically, it's just a continuation of the two ways, the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. On the way of the wicked, we see the nations raging, fighting against Yahweh and against his Messiah. And this is the path of the wicked that Jesus declared is wide and contains the majority of mankind. But then the way of the righteous is not only found in Jesus as we looked at, uh, sorry, but then the way of the righteous is only found in Jesus as we looked at last week. The righteous one is Jesus, who's declared in verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3, the way of the righteous, is describing Jesus himself. And therefore, he is the one through whom we find the way of the righteous ourselves. He is the fulfillment of the prophesied Messiah, the righteous one. Now, secondarily, Psalm 2 seems to be a continuation of Psalm 1, structurally, not just thematically. Notice that 1-1 begins with, blessed is the man. And Psalm 2 finishes in verse 12 with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this could be what is referred to as an inclusio, where this phrasing of blessed be acts as, a, as parenthetical bookends to the rest of the material. And so verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 2 are taking the discussion of the way of the wicked and enhancing the view and so we can see it uh, more detailed. As we noted in the introduction already, mankind innately has, as Augustine called it, a hurtful desire based in pride that seeks to usurp the throne of God and be lords of our own life. And as such, we, individually and collectively as humanity, rage against God in anger that he is Lord and we are not. And if you think about it, this happens in some of the smallest ways. All of mankind was given over to this desire to be lords, and as a result, we started to form idols of so-called gods that were really just image bearers of our own perverse lordship. It may not be that we make statues anymore, but the lives we build are idols to self. Just go on social media, and you can see that very quickly. Now, this is why the psalmist, and Paul quoting the psalmist, says that there is none righteous, not one, and none seek after God. We are too busy being gods in our own minds, and illogically straining to make the world we inhabit bow to our lordship. Friends, every conflict you get in in this world, whether it be with a roommate, a spouse, your kids, your boss, the TV in front of you, is you trying to conform the world to bow to your lordship. Before we gloss past this, recognize that rage at God for being lord does not always mean an outward show of anger. You might be a person who never expresses anger, but in a sense, we rage at his lordship when we live with ingratitude. In a sense, we rage at his lordship when we live in discontentment with our life. In a sense, we rage at his lordship when we think we deserve better than we have, and we kick against the goads of his sovereign reign in our life. Friends, when our lives are defined by selfishness, self-focus, and self-rule, we are raging against the Lord. And if any of you in here think, well, good thing that's not me, you're not paying attention. It's literally every one of us, myself included. But praise God, he did not leave us in this state. Because friends, we need to be reminded of this. And the reason we share the bad news every Sunday is because if you think you're ready to move past it, then you're not paying attention to how deeply depraved you are. We each need, is that a word from the Lord? <laughs> we each need to be reminded that we are at war against our flesh and that the Lord is Lord of our lives, that he is the one who is calling us into his good news to be his people and to walk in his holiness. Praise God that he did not leave us in this state. If he had, he would have been just, but he didn't. He lovingly called us out of it. The biblical story is that it was out of this damned mass of humanity that God chose Abraham and his offspring, Israel, to be the people that would be sub-regents in the place of Adam and Eve who fell. Israel was to be the ones that proclaimed Yahweh's lordship and displayed submission to that lordship in their communal life together. Outside of the Jews, in the Hebrew, were just the goyim, the Gentiles, 
The word here for nations, why do the nations rage, is goyim. Those outside of the people of God rage at his authority and attempt to plot in vain. And it is vain because it is ludicrous for the creation to say to the creator, how dare you? How dare you make my life the way you've made it? How dare you make me the gender you've made me? How dare you make me inhabit this world as I inhabit it? It is ludicrous. The plotting that is occurring is pictured as if the nations came to offer the appropriate worship to the king, but then here in Psalm 2, they decided, once they saw their supposed mass, that they could overthrow him by their own ingenuity. And so humanity takes counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. In the original audience of this psalm, they firmly believed that this was referring to the king of Israel when it says anointed, anointed by God in the lineage of David. The nations, they believed, were the ones fighting against God because they did not bow to Davidic Israeli rule. But as we can read within the accounts of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, it was not even two generations before the human kingship of Israel turned sour and led to division among God's people. And then in Psalm 3, we'll see this morning, even in that first uh, group of people, of David, even his own kin, human greed rises and power, uh, desire for power rises and the lordship. Uh, of, of Absalom starts to take over David's own kingship. This was shattered even further when Israel was conquered and taken into exile by Assyria and then Babylon. And Israel then recognized that this anointed that they needed was no longer just a simple earthly king, but it was someone greater, a Messiah. And that's the word in the Hebrew for anointed, Mashiach, who could actually free them from the tyranny of sin, who could actually solve the real problem. But notice that this is not humanity's rally cry here. Here, what it is that they're crying out in verse 3 is, like Braveheart, freedom! Now, friends, hear me. As an American, an American pastor who can preach the word of God and is thankful for every person who has put their life on the line to protect the freedoms of this nation where I can preach the word of God, I enjoy freedom, and so do you. And we should be thankful for that. However, the ultimate freedom cried for by mankind here is not that kind of freedom, freedom to proclaim the lordship of Christ. It is freedom to be lord of our own lives. They are crying out for freedom from God's supposed tyranny. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. How infantile and arrogant and hateful is this worldwide mutiny. This is like the tree that calls for freedom from the ground in which it finds root. This is like the baby who calls for freedom from the very mother who's providing sustenance and life. For the creature to declare its sovereignty over the creator shows the sin that is at the core of each of us. C.H. Spurgeon stated clearly on this section, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. And this would become undeniably clear on the cross of Calvary as mankind took counsel to finally free themselves from the tyranny of God by killing God himself. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are convicted in your heart that this is you, God is calling you lovingly to repentance today. And if you want to do that, he is waiting, simply waiting for you to cry out to him in prayer and confess your sin of self-lordship and accept his grace. Christ wants you to be free from the bondage to self. And we as pastors are here to help you. If that's you and you would like to talk more about what this means, please see one of us after the sermon. At the cross of Calvary, mankind showed the depth of its sin. And what is sin but what is shown here? Sin is the rejection of God's rule in favor of our own will. And this was present in humanity's beginning. It's present in us still unless someone frees us from our sin and gives us a heart to worship God. But we must recognize it, and it alone, as the problem from which all other issues spring. Friends, that's why our greatest call as Christians is to preach the gospel of the good news of Christ's lordship. Only in Christ's lordship can we find the solution. Praise God for his response. And this one is correct. You can write this down. God's royal response to sin. God's royal response to sin. 
Verses 4 through 9. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. As I noted, the original audience of this psalm would have thought of it as a royal psalm describing the reign of a Davidic line and the refusal of the Gentile nations to accept that rule. But a broken and exiled kingdom quickly helped them understand that they were dealing with a far greater Messiah, a far greater anointed one. And as they looked at the promises made in the Davidic covenant that you can find in 2 Samuel 7, they realized that God's promise to establish the throne of David forever was not an earthly throne, but a heavenly one. And so they began to look for a Messiah, an anointed one, who would be able to take on the sin of Israel and bring God's forgiveness. This Messiah is the one pictured in the book of Daniel, who is given the very throne of heaven by the Ancient of Days. He is the one who will establish God's kingdom on earth. And this plan, dear friends, was not plan B that God came up with on the fly as his other plans failed and he was intimidated by our sin. This was always the plan. Even at the time of David writing, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, this psalm. In a sense, the world spoke in hatred and rage in verse 3, but God here responds based on his plan of salvation. God the Father speaks here in response to the world. And notice the full picture. First it says, the one who sits in the heavens. And this means the one that is enthroned in the heavens. And this throne, dear friends, it does not move. God's throne is never moved. Is that not good news? It is founded, for that is who God is. Friends, when you feel like the world is shaking around you, cast your eyes on God's throne. You will find surety and peace immediately because he is enthroned in the heavens and he will not move. The Jews long understood Yahweh to be king of the universe and referred to him as such in their prayers. God sits enthroned here. And notice that he laughs This is the only place in the Bible where God is said to laugh. But it's not a jovial laugh. It's a laugh of derision. Friends, it pictures God, in a sense, mocking humanity's attempt to detach from his provision. But friends, this isn't a heavenly bully. It's more the picture of a loving parent who has done everything for their child, loved them well, and here's the young infant, in barely formed words, yell something like, I hate you and I'm going to run away. Even a good parent especially a good parent, cannot help but laugh because we recognize the ridiculous nature and see the sin nature for what it is. We learned in Psalm 1 that the way of the wicked is the way of the scoffer, scoffing at God's rightful place as Lord and King and ruler. And here with his laugh, God, in a sense, scoffs back, but only his scoffing is founded in reality. And the Ancient of Days, dear friends, is not one to be trifled with. He is one to be revered and worshipped. His power is so great, his reign so established, that he not need even glance at the rebellion of man. And yet, he is willing to initiate the greatest rescue plan ever formed to save us from our own rebellion. What is that rescue plan? Well, the word spoke in verse 3 was the world. Speaking to God, now we hear God the Father speak to tell us his plan. And again, the tone here is not jovial. It's not mild. He speaks in his wrath and terrifies the world in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Unlike humanity, his scoffing is not temperamental or infantile. The picture here is to anthropomorphize him, to turn him into a human, even though he's not, with an almost disbelief that mankind could be that unthankful and hateful. He is literally the one who has given us life and breath and relationship and one another and food and drink and sleep and sun and rain. Just keep on going with it. It's from him. All good gifts come from God. And yet we scoff at him. And so he responds with a steady and firm fact that should cause all mankind to bow in healthy fear. The true ruler, the one that has earned it, he has been established. Friends, like I said, this truth is good news. For nothing that comes against us, even death itself, can undo this fact. 
You see, our fear as humans comes from the idea that the world is chaos, that there is no order, there is no ruler. And it comes from the place that when our lordship fails us, which it does all the time, does it not? We think, well, if I'm not in control, then who is? Friends, we know who is. We know the one who is established in the heavens. And nothing can undo this fact. Our God reigns and he is for us and has made us his own adopted children. He will care for us. He will lovingly reign over us. He will take all that Satan means for evil and turn it to his glory and our good. And he will ensure our eternal rest in him. This is what we stand on. This is what we turn to in strength. This is who we look to when we are weak. We look to the Messiah enthroned in the heavens. Amen? We have heard the world speak. We have heard the Father God speak. And now we hear God the Son speak as he gives us the detail of this decree just uttered and quotes what the Father said to him. This is the Son of Man from Daniel, but also the Son of the Heavenly King, the Son of God. We see him say here, The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The early audience of Jews could only hope for a Messiah that will fulfill this role. But as those sitting on this side of the new covenant, we know who that is. At Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said clearly, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And in Mark 9, 7, in the midst of the transfiguration of Jesus, again the Father spoke, and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. But what is the next line we see here in Psalm 2? Do the cults and early heretics of the church have a point that maybe Jesus was not divine or eternal, but merely a man? For it says here that he is begotten. Now, in my opinion, this is one of the most beautiful and poetic sections in all of Scripture. For yes, it can be easily misinterpreted toward that heresy that Jesus was created. But through the lens of the Gospels and the New Testament, we can actually see what is being prophesied here is that at the same time this anointed king was being enthroned, he was also brought into being through the resurrection. But a human prince is not given the throne upon birth, as some people might interpret this. This is not an enthronement and a birth in terms of human birth. So what is it talking about here? Well, in Acts 13.33, Paul tells us this is actually referring to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. For God has worked a miracle of new life in him as the first fruits of the resurrection. Acts 13.33 says, This he has fulfilled uh, uh, to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. For it was the resurrection, at the resurrection, that Jesus was brought to life as the first fruits of the resurrection, and at the same time, given the throne of Daniel 7. And this is why Paul also calls Jesus in Colossians 1.18, the one is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He has always existed with God the Father, but in the resurrection, he was, in the same sense as his people, born anew into the resurrection. Because remember, he tread the path of righteousness that we follow in. At the cross and resurrection of Christ, this was established. But this does not mean he was created. It means instead that he is part of the triune God. And so we live in the time of verses 8 and 9 here, where the Lord has been enthroned, but God the Father is making the nations Christ's heritage and the ends of the earth his possession, where he is breaking with a rod of iron and dashing the rulers in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is where we live right now is in this place. God the Father is making the earth Christ's possession. But as we look around us and as we read the newspaper, we see the gospel advancing in strange ways. Now working through the most of the developing world, as the developed world has arrogantly moved past it into supposed enlightenment. But it is true that Christ is still capturing, ransoming, saving men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation under heaven. But our question, as Americans who want our way right away, is to say, why isn't his reign complete and pervasive? Why isn't it happening right now? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that this process will not look like what we want. This is from Hebrews 
It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, to Christ, he left nothing outside his control. That's good news. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but it is happening. Christ is drawing the nations, making the entire world his heritage. Jesus has been enthroned, but as in verse 3, many still refuse his loving rule. And so, as a benevolent ruler, he is patient and giving time for men and women to prove out with their lives what will be declared in judgment. So we now partner with Christ as his ambassadors to go throughout the nations and even our own circles of influence to declare boldly that Jesus has been enthroned as king. He has brought salvation to all who are his citizens, and we must respond with acknowledgement and submission of this fact. The lordship of Christ is not just a happy side effect of our forgiveness and salvation, friends. The lordship of Christ is our salvation. He has freed us from the enslavement of sin and death and made us his own so that our natural affections might be slowly but surely sanctified and pointed towards him, towards the one whom we were created to worship. Friends, when you go and you preach this gospel, you will see how quickly the world responds in rebellion. If you go and say, Jesus loves you as the entire thing, it is true. But as the entire thing, watch the world go, I know, why wouldn't he? But you go and tell them, Jesus Christ is Lord. Watch how quickly the rebellion comes. For that is the truth. He has been made Lord and he loves us and has drawn us into his benevolent reign. Amen? The Father has spoken. The Son has spoken, and now it's as if the Holy Spirit is speaking as he declares the appropriate response to this heavenly enthronement. And so next we see a wise warning to the world. In the last few verses, a wise warning to the world. The recipients of this warning are kings and rulers, but in the context of what has already been laid out, we can easily see that this applies to every person, not just the heads of the goyim, the Gentiles. For each of us in sin and rebellion have staked our claim on the world as rulers. And in so doing, we have voluntarily aligned with the adversary of God, Satan himself, and his kingdom of darkness. So it is each of us that must be warned and given wisdom. This is why we repeat both the bad news and the good news that answers it every Sunday. There will come a day when those who maintain their rebellion will be destroyed by the rod of iron and broken like a vessel who have, who have rebelled against the potter, now, as we sit amongst a world where the heaviest topic of the news cycle is debate over those raging at God for the way he made them, the way he engendered them, this is a word of warning that our world needs to hear. For any who stand in rebellion against God will face that rod of iron and will be broken like cast-aside pottery. Friends, when we shake our fist at God, we are not victims. We are rebels. And that is what we don't understand in this world today. And so the loving warning of wisdom comes forward in verses 11 and 12. Or sorry, 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The book of Revelation, as we learned about a year ago, is full of the imagery that is used in this psalm. Let me recapitulate it for you. <laughs> Pastor joke. Revelation 1.5 speaks of Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 2.27 says he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Revelation 12.5 speaks of the one who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Revelation captures the fact that Christ has been enthroned and his rule has been inaugurated but the judgment is still to come. We live, dear friends, in this in-between time. We, the church, have been born anew into the citizenry of heaven under the lordship of Christ. It is what we live out amongst one another as his community of believers. But we live amongst the world in the hands of the enemy. And so the Holy Spirit works through the church as the ambassadors that are sent out of it to speak to the world and draw them into submission to Christ. His response that is called for is fivefold. First, be wise and be warned. Be wise and be warned. All of mankind must hear this truth and acknowledge it. Many will possibly attempt to say to God on that day, if you were real, why didn't you make yourself known? And then he will point to eternity in the hearts of man, 
He will point to the creation around them that testifies to his glory. He will point out the church spreading the gospel throughout the world, and every human will know their guilt and refusal and rebellion. Brothers and sisters, make sure you are hearing God. Spend time in his word listening to his lordship. Otherwise, your heart is built to draw you towards idolatry. And declare it among those you are around. Remind them that they are created and they have a loving creator who wants to save them. This wisdom, if we acknowledge it, should then cause us to turn to the Lord and away from sin so that we might next serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. He is a holy God that spans the universe with his hands and spoke it in existence with the power of his word. And so it is right to come humbly and reverently to him, not because he is evil or threatening, but because he is so holy and so good and so powerfully loving. Brothers and sisters, we must ask, do we rightly fear God in reverence? If not, we need to ask the Lord to give us a fear, a healthy, loving fear at the heart level. And this willing submission, this serving the Lord in fear, this hearing his truth, it will then lead to rejoicing with trembling, rejoicing with trembling. For if you and I understand and acknowledge that we were chief among the rebels of verse 3, we will have a response of thanksgiving and rejoicing that makes us weak at the knees at all times. Years ago, I was hiking with my family, and we were on the edge of a cliff face, a very small trail, and someone walking by us almost fell off the cliff, but my father, out of sheer instinct, reached out, grabbed them, and plopped them back on the trail. He's about my size, so he just grabbed the person, put them back on the trail. And they walked on as if nothing had happened. But my father, who is, as I said, a big man like me, he was quaking. And I remember him saying, I don't think they understand what just happened. My father did because he knew that if he had not grabbed them by their shirt and hoisted them back on the trail, they would have certainly been shattered like pottery on the rocks below. Friends, this realization should grip us at our core and should cause rejoicing that never ends. We were meant for the rocks and yet God grabbed us and placed us on the way. For we deserve to be broken. For we were the wicked, on the way of the wicked, and we should perish in the way. And yet God in his divine mercy died in our stead and took on the wrath that was ours and grabbed us and made us his own. But all too often we are like the people on the trail that go on their merry way as if nothing ever happened. And this progression of this life of worship that we're talking about should then lead us to the next step, which is to embrace the sun, kiss the sun. The NASB translation has it translated as do homage to the king. The imagery here is not just any kind of kiss. It's not a smooch. It's a kissing of the feet in subjection and worship. It's similar to the woman in the gospels anointing Jesus' feet with oil and kissing him in thanksgiving for his forgiveness. And lastly, all of this leads us to take refuge in God. What a beautiful picture here. For the Christian does not assume salvation by our works of righteousness, but simply takes and accepts the refuge offered by the Father. This is what faith is. It's an open hand to receive the refuge that God provides. And we are made happy. We are blessed by his salvation given through Christ because we are now placed on the way of righteousness in Christ. Because of this graciousness of Christ, we need not fear the wrath that is coming. And so as we sit in the place of an inaugurated kingdom awaiting the fullness of Christ's reign, we must recognize that the world will rage at us as well. But rather than fear, we learn from the next psalm that God's people can trust in him amidst the mutiny. God's people can trust in him amidst the mutiny. As I noted in the introduction, we will do our best to teach through two psalms at a time and connect them based on shared thematic content. We'll be hopping around a bit, but making it through the first 41 psalms. As we look at the more global and universal foundation of Christ's enthronement and salvation in, in Psalm 2, it makes perfect sense for us to finish this morning on this last point with the whole of Psalm 3. For Psalm 3 is a psalm of David, the anointed king of Israel. And yet, because of the sinful heart of man, even his own son Absalom, and those who align with him, they rose up in rebellion against God's earthly anointed. And so this psalm is a psalm of lament by David, crying out for God to bring salvation. And you'll notice in verse 4, God answers him from the holy hill upon which he was enthroned in Psalm 2. 
And so the two are very closely tied. Let's read Psalm 3 together now, verses 1 through 8. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. I threw in that Yahweh there because everywhere you see the capital, L-O-R-D, that is the name of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this psalm is broken into three parts, broken up by the word Selah. So I'm going to take the next two hours to break it down. I'm just kidding. Don't worry. Uh, we'll be done here soon. We're not 100% sure of what this word Selah means, but it most likely is just a break in the rhythm of the psalm as it was sung. And we're to use this as a moment to pause and ponder what was said. So it's broken up into three sections. And David is practicing a psalm of lament here. Friends, lament is a wonderful gift given to us by God. It is where we are proclaiming that God is good and just and the world around us is not. And so we're uniting with God in his sadness at the sin of mankind and we're crying out for the fullness of his salvation to come. It's a wonderful tool, especially for days like today where we lament the brokenness of our human bodies and the world around us and look forward to the resurrection. In David's particular case, you can read the background to this psalm in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. 2 Samuel 15 and 16. His son Absalom had subversively rebelled against him and raised up others in mutiny against his rule. And worse yet, these enemies were surrounding David as if to choke out his faith in the one who has called him and anointed him. They're crying out to him and saying, there is no salvation for you in God. Why are you depending on him? And like the nations opposed to God, the enemies of David set themselves against him. And notice the thematic connection there between the two psalms. Friends, perhaps you can understand David's direct pain here as his own son has betrayed him. And in the process, many of his closest friends had aligned with Absalom in that betrayal. Maybe you have known that level of betrayal. But even if you can't resonate with that specific point, all of us as Christ's people will at one time or another know the hatred of the world as it rages against our Lord. Christ said this. He promised this in the Gospels. Here is one example. In Luke 6, 22 through 23, in Luke 6, 26, uh, Luke's be version of the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you when people hate you. Yikes. When they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. For those of you who think Christianity is niceness, look at the next line. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Because you are in Christ and you represent Christ's lordship, the world that rages at him will rage at you as well if you are living and proclaiming the gospel. Brothers and sisters, does it feel like this sometimes? The world is trying to convince you that there is no salvation in the Lord, and sometimes this doubt creeps in when the world and maybe our own flesh seems to overwhelm us. This war that is waging is evidence of your place in Christ. We don't try to be hated for hatred's sake. We simply preach the lordship of Christ in love, loving our enemies, and yet they will hate us anyway because of the lordship of Christ. In that battle, this is the point. We are to look to the Lord, not to our situation or to ourselves, which is exactly what David models here. He reminds himself of the Lord's character and strength. He cries out to the Lord, as we see in verse 4, and the Lord, enthroned on Zion, founded, answers him from his holy hill. What is implied is that David is reminded here that Yahweh cannot be moved. He notes that it is Yahweh who is the one who protects him from the enemy. For Yahweh is his shield that surrounds him. Yahweh is his glory. He needs no self-professed or earned glory. Even his kingdom can be taken from him. His friends aligned against him. And it is the Lord who will show himself glorious through David. 
For in the most humbled and dejected state, the Lord is actually able to lift up David's head. For if we lift up our own head in pride and arrogance, we are just like the nations arrayed against him. But if we humble ourselves before God, the word tells us he will lift us up. Because of this, David, even amidst betrayal and mutiny from his own blood and those he trusted, is able to lay down and sleep in peace. Because it is the Lord, not his circumstance or even his feelings and perceptions of the situation that sustains him, he is able to rest in peace. In fact, those will lead to discontentment and even an ungodly fear when we focus too heavily on our perceptions, our feelings, the world that is raging around us, the circumstances we find ourselves in. But when David sets his eyes on Christ and realizes that it is the Lord that sustains him, his strength is built, and even the tens of thousands of enemies surrounding him does not evoke fear. It simply causes him to cry out to God all the more in trust. I was blessed last night because as I held John's hand in the hospital and I was able to pray for him, I thought to myself how wonderful it is we can turn to the Lord and then he showed me what true faith is and he started praying for the Lord to show himself powerful through his circumstance. I was so blessed to watch a brother in Christ rely upon his faith, not his circumstances. Friends, this is a great example for us. When our circumstances, when our even emotions, when our life, when our trials tell us something different, we need to instead be like David and turn to the Lord. For David was as weak as we are and as broken as we are and surrounded by as much brokenness as, as we are. When you look at the world around you that is raging at your king, don't fixate on their rebellion. When you look at your own sin that is raging against the king, don't fixate on your own sin and shame. Turn to God in prayer so that you can rest in him and the truth of his reign in your life that he is fixed no matter what's going on. When life hits you with trial and tribulation, don't sit in your circumstances as if you have been forsaken. Turn to God in prayer so that you can rest in him and the truth of his reign. He is your sure foundation. And notice what David does next. He does not sink into weakness or resigned hopelessness. No, he cries out to God to act as a warrior on his behalf. He places vengeance and justice in the hands of God and trusts God to act in his timing and his will. This is what the phrase to begin verse 7 is all about. It is similar to the Israelite war cry. He says, arise, O Lord. You'll find this in Numbers as well. Moses would speak this out whenever Israel would break camp. The cry that Yahweh would go before them and destroy their enemies. Friends, this is a wonderful morning prayer. This psalm, in fact, is called a morning psalm. Why? Because before your, hit, uh, your feet hit the floor, you can sit up and say, arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Set your day with that perspective that he is founded and you are his servant and you are about to perform his will in your life. The cry that Yahweh would go before us and destroy our enemies. David saw this play out in the story of 2 Samuel 15 through 16 as his enemies were put to flight and brought down. Even his son Absalom was killed. For we can trust in the sovereignty and just nature of God that he will bring justice to bear against his enemies and he will bring merciful salvation to those that are his chosen people. It will not be in our timing, but it will happen. He will carry out the rule of the rod of iron and the dashing of enemies like pottery, for he will strike them on the cheek and break their teeth with his power. And friends, before we use our contemporary sensibilities to critique this action of God or to try and explain away the very character of God that is displayed here, notice two things. First, it is not David that suddenly feels justified to go take out vengeance. No, he actually instead aligns with the New Testament understanding that vengeance is the Lord's to bring, and he simply trusts in God and trusts in God's judgment. But secondly, this action of crying out for God to strike all the enemies and break the teeth of the wicked, to perform what he talked about in Psalm 2, is actually a cry for his mercy for his people. For the Old Testament imagery is that it is these teeth that attempt to devour the righteous. Friends, evil is real, and it must be dealt with for righteousness to reign. We see this idea, for example, in Job 29, 17. 
I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Satan and those who align in rebellion with him wish to devour the righteous people of God. And so God, in mercy, in love, cannot allow both to stand. For justice and righteousness require him to bring salvation to his people, which also requires that he defeat his enemies. And so, friends, where that puts us is in a place of humility, not in a place of arrogance, pointing the finger at other people as if they are his enemies, but realizing that we were his enemies, and yet he saved us. We have been given a grace that we have not earned and is therefore a grace that we should share with the world around us so that those who are his people will hear his voice and follow him. Folks, when we are overwhelmed with the world that seems to rage against God and his people, when we are overwhelmed with the sin within that seems to rage at God and fight against our own nature, when these things happen, when we find ourselves overwhelmed with trial and tribulation, don't get confused. Don't get overwhelmed by all the possible problems. For there really is only one problem, and that is mankind's sin against God. Glory be to God that he has already provided the perfect solution in his son, Jesus Christ. Glory be to God that we can rest in him and his founded lordship. So in those moments when we feel overwhelmed, when it's the world around us, the sin within us, or the trial and tribulation we find, we can cry to God. And the wording here that David lays out in Psalm 3, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, it's that he answers us. Maybe not in a way where you can audibly hear it, but he will answer your cry, and he already has, in an eternal nature, by giving you resurrection, by giving you new life, by giving you the promise of his kingdom. We can have confidence that salvation is his, and it cannot be undone or thwarted. And so we, as his people, can lament the pain of the current chaos that surrounds us like David. But no, the lament has a silver lining because it is not just cries of distress, it's distress bathed in hope. A hope that does not disappoint because God is faithful and he cannot be moved. Don't let your feelings, your situations, your perceptions lie to you. For God is enthroned in the heavens and he has set his anointed Messiah on his holy hill and he will make all things right. And so the blessing on his people is undeniable as we finish this psalm, because as it says at the end of Psalm 2, we take refuge in him. We take refuge in him. And so today, dear church, do not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. For we have a warrior king enthroned in the heavens who alone holds salvation in his hands. And notice that it says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Friends, it is not yours to lose in your weakness. His salvation is his, and he gives it to whom he pleases. And we can trust that it is steadfast and sure. While the world rages and takes up arms against him, while it feels like everything is going to heck in a handbasket, it feels like it's closing in around us, God will prove himself faithful. He will sustain his saints. He will be our refuge, our shield, and our glory. For in Christ, salvation is found in the midst of the world raging at Christ. Amen? Let's stand sure and steadfast on his throne, for he has brought us to be his people. Let's go ahead and stand now. Or sorry, not stand now. You guys take me really literally. Stand. On, good job. There we go. And then I was following your lead. It all got mixed up. Anyway, <laughs> let's pray. And then we're going to move into communion. And then we're going to stand literally <laughs> in surety on him. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your people. Thank you for your people ready to stand, ready to fight with you and alongside you, knowing that you are our strength. You are our refuge in times of trouble. And Lord, we need that so much today because we look at the world and we see that it's a reflection of our own fleshly hearts. And so we come to you, Lord, not in arrogance, knowing that you saved us because we are so good. We come to you in humility, thanking you 
Lord, we are the ones that strayed off the path and easily would be destroyed, and yet you plucked us from our own sin and placed us on the way everlasting. And so as we sing to you now, Lord, we lament the state of the world, and we also cry to you for their salvation. And we ask you to give us hearts to be evangelists, to go and take that salvation to the world. And we also thank you and praise you, Lord, for what you have done in our lives. And so as we stand here before you, before your throne, Lord, we give you praise and adoration and thanks. And we enter into this time of communion and humility, knowing that it is all by you, all by your grace, nothing we have done, nothing we have earned. Lord, if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you today or is struggling in their faith, I pray, Lord, that you would draw their heart to you, that you would use us as a body and as pastors to be able to walk them through what it looks like to follow you. And Lord, we also just once again, we think of our brother John and we pray, God, uh, that even though he's not here, Lord, you would bring a sense of communion to him, that he is one with us and with you and that you are protecting him and you are his refuge and strength. You are his wife and his children's refuge and strength as well in this time of trial. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.